want to start a new series today. It's just a short series. Um, but we're going to take a break from it next week while we have a mini vision day because there's a few things we just want to make known that are coming up in the church. So it's not going to be an extended day. It's just going to be a normal kind of length day, but with focusing on specific issues. But the series I want to begin is on um, prayer in the book of Luke. And it's two things. It's two sides to it. Firstly, the prayers that Jesus himself prayed. And secondly, the teaching he gave on prayer. In the book of Luke, prayer has a specific focus. It's specifically, um, an import, it has an important significance, both in the terms of the life of Jesus and also um, for our lives. And so we're going to look at this, take this series on prayer. My, my hope, my anticipation is that it will bring us to a greater understanding of prayer because we all have something to learn. None of us have it all sorted and all sussed in terms of our prayer life. I, for one, am happy to put up my hand to say I'm not there yet. I've got more to learn. And, I, and as we continue to, to feed on the word and especially study in the life of Jesus, we can learn more in our understanding of what prayer is all about and how it works. So that's why we're going to focus on this at the beginning of the year, so that we set ourselves a firm platform and foundation for our lives, our spiritual lives, as we go forward. And during this series, as I say, we'll look at the example of Jesus and how he prayed. And we'll also consider how prayer actually works, and therefore why it's essential that we pray if we want to see change. Now, do we want to see change in this world and in the parts of our lives in with, that we inhabit in this world? Then the only answer is prayer. Prayer brings heaven to earth. Prayer brings the favor of God. Prayer opens the door for things to happen. No prayer and things stay the same. And I, for one, don't want to see things staying the same. Not in my life. Not in the life of us as a church. I want to see change. I want to see God do things. I want to see the enemy's kingdom push back. I want to see the freedom that's come through the cross breaking in to the lives of those that I encounter day by day. That can only come through prayer. There's no other way. We neglect prayer at our loss. And we all do. But we do it at our loss. And the enemy wants to keep us from praying. He wants to keep us from spending that time with God, of equipping ourselves, and of opening the heavens so that the favour of God might come to earth. So that's why we're focusing on this whole subject at the beginning of the year. And we're starting in Luke chapter 3. And it's actually the baptism of Jesus. And at this point in the narrative, we've heard about the conception of John the Baptist and the miraculous conception of Jesus. We've journeyed to Bethlehem and seen the shepherds come to worship the newborn king in the stable. We've heard the affirmation of Jesus by Simeon and Anna in the temple. All of these events have been recorded for us in the first couple of chapters. And we, we... dwelt on some of those before Christmas. We've also heard the story so far in Luke of Jesus' trip to the temple as a young boy and his early sense of his identity and calling and that 
that amazing knowledge that he already had as a around about 12 year old boy that he was the son of God. And this is where we break into the narrative at this point. In the first part of Luke 3, Luke has related for us in this chapter the ministry of John the Baptist as a preparation for the coming of the Messiah, concluding with John's confinement after he spoke out against Herod Antipas for marrying his brother's wife. Luke spends one chapter on the ministry of John the Baptist and then the rest of the book on the ministry of Jesus. There's a balance there somewhere. And in this account, John has been challenging people to set their lives in order. And he uses um, apocalyptic language. Now, that's just a, a technical term, which means he's using end time kind of language. He's using stuff saying the judgment of God is coming, get your lives right. And he's telling people to prepare for the fact that the Messiah is about to come amongst them. And in the midst of this fiery preaching, there is John uh, wearing nothing but camel's hair and eating locusts or locust beans or whatever you want to interpret it. You know, leg hanging out his mouth and loincloth on and standing in the middle of the river with a big beard and hair and shouting and telling the Pharisees to get lost and all this kind of stuff. In the midst of this dynamic scene by the banks of Jordan, up walks a lone figure. And stands before John, and John has immediate recognition of who this figure is, and why he's come, and what his ministry is to be. And we'll break into it in verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. This story is just very brief. Just two verses dealing with the baptism of Jesus. And yet it's laden with significance. Jesus comes to John to be baptized. And having done so, he prays. I'd never noticed that before. It's not in the other accounts of of the baptism of Jesus. Only Luke records this additional detail, that Jesus, having come out of the water, prays. And as he prays, the Holy Spirit descends upon him. It's in response to the prayers of Jesus that the Holy Spirit comes at this moment. It's in response to the prayers of Jesus that heaven is opened. It's in response to prayer that the dynamic ministry of Jesus is launched. Prayer opens the doorway. And prayer brings the Holy Spirit to bear on the ministry of Jesus. It's a significant, very small piece in a couple of verses. And yet it opens up a whole realm of things in our understanding of what prayer does. It opens the heavens. It draws down the Holy Spirit. It brings the favor of God and the ministry of God upon all we do. Now this passage, in order to understand its significance, we need to go back to three Old Testament passages. Sorry if it's a bit of a teach this morning. That's just the way I do things. 
So we've got going to go back to Ezekiel 2, Psalm 2, and Psalm and Isaiah 42. So let's turn first of all to Ezekiel chapter 2. First of all, Ezekiel 1, just verse 25. And there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Verse 2, sorry, chapter 2, verse 1. And then he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Then he said to me, Son of man, I'm sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. And I'm sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children. And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they are listen, whether they listen or not, they are rebellious for their rebellious house. They will know that a prophet has been among them. This passage relates the calling of Ezekiel. And yet it has real parallels with what we see in the ministry of Jesus on the banks of, or happening on the banks of Jordan. It's a passage that's set in Babylonian captivity, where Ezekiel as a prophet is sent to turn the people of Israel back to God. And at the time they were in captivity as a result of their disobedience. And Ezekiel is commissioned as the last of the major prophets to call them back to repentance. But there are similarities to the baptism of Jesus here. In verse 25 of chapter 1, we saw that a voice came from heaven. In chapter 2, verse 1, we see the term the Son of Man used, which has later messianic significance, especially from the book of Daniel. But here it literally reads as Ben Adam, reminding us of man's, as man as God's creation made in his image, but also anticipating that term for Jesus, the Son of Man, as being the one who would be the new Adam, the second Adam. The Adam that would bring in a whole new nation under him. Who would re-establish what was lost through the Adamic fall. And would restore mankind back into relationship with God. And all that was lost would be renewed and restored to them. And that term, son of man, anticipates all that Jesus would do. And in response to the voice from heaven with Ezekiel. Notice in verse 2, the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit came upon Ezekiel to anoint him for ministry. Just as he comes upon Jesus to anoint him for ministry by the Jordan. And Ezekiel's message is to call people back to God. And in the same, same way, Jesus came to bring us back to God. And the conclusion of Ezekiel's ministry is to be that people will know that a prophet has been amongst them. And the conclusion of Jesus' ministry is to know, for us to know that God has been amongst us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And so in this passage we see, or even though it's speaking specifically about Ezekiel, it anticipates the same process that Jesus would go through on the banks of Jordan. That in response to his prayer, the heavens would be opened, a voice would come forth, and Ezekiel would be anointed with the Spirit for ministry. And that's what we see and the banks of Jordan, Jesus prays, the heavens are opened, the Holy Spirit comes, and his ministry is launched, which will, in his case, 
cause blind eyes to see, the deaf to hear, the broken lives repaired, those who are bound set free, and seeing all the favour of God come upon those who come to him. This whole passage foreshadows the coming and anointing of Jesus with and by the Holy Spirit. The passage in Luke also anticipates the anointing of the Holy Spirit on the church that came about on the day of Pentecost, which, like the anointing of Jesus, would be an anointing for ministry. And we too, like Ezekiel and like Jesus, are called to be amongst the world as a prophetic people, bringing the world back to God and making known the mercy which has come through Jesus Christ. See, the Pentecostal experience, receiving the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, isn't given to make us worship nicely, to give us goosebumps. It's not given to make a nice flow on a Sunday morning. All of those things are part and parcel. But the work the Holy Spirit is given to anoint us for ministry in the world. That's the single reason that he's given. We receive the Holy Spirit, not for our own blessing and benefit, but so that we can go out there. And if we're not going out there and we're keeping it for ourselves, then we're wasting our time. We might as well shut up and go home. The Holy Spirit is given for ministry to the world. Ezekiel received it to go and make a prophetic voice known so that the people would come back in repentance to God. Jesus received the Holy Spirit in order that he might minister the grace and the favor and the mercy of God. We receive the Holy Spirit so that we can bring, be that, fulfill that ministry of mediation to bring people back into relationship with their creator, with their father. And I'm not putting down at all in the slightest to receive the Spirit. We all need the Spirit. We all need filling with the Spirit day by day. We need the baptism in the Spirit. We need the Spirit to be um, uh, filling us and overflowing from, from us and through us. We need to operate out of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But we must never forget that it's for out there, not just for in here. And Jesus himself confirmed this. His first sermon in Luke chapter 4 was, the, Holy, the, the, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to set the captives free. Jesus confirmed what he was here to do. Now here's a question. Why does the spirit come bod- in bodily form upon Jesus? It's very clear in the, in the Luke passage that the Holy Spirit comes in bodily form as a dove. That's literally what the Greek means. Any ideas? Angie says so people can see it. So there's confirmation in there. For, that John's word would, would, would actually it'd be confirmed to John and then he could testify. Yeah, and, and it's all part of that. People seeing it, it being made com- very clear what was happening at that moment, that the Holy Spirit was coming. But why was it a dove? Don't be anachronistic now, come on. 
Huh? It does indeed. But why was it in the form of a dove? Well done. Top marks over there. <laughs> the dove was the herald of good news. At the time of the ark, of course, it's the dove that came and brought the good news that the waters had receded. And this was the dove bringing good news that the Messiah, the King, the Son of God was amongst them. So the, the dove, the Holy Spirit comes as a dove to announce that Jesus is here and that his ministry is to begin. It's the material anointing of Jesus that everybody might, that it might be made clear to everybody who saw it who this character, who this figure was, and confirmed in the testimony of John. In which case, why when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, did he come with fire? Well, firstly, it was in fulfillment to prophecy. John the Baptist said, he shall... um, baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. That's what John prophesied over Jesus. But also fire speaks of cleansing. Jesus was perfect. He didn't need cleansing. Guess what? You and I aren't. We do. (laughs) So when the Holy Spirit comes to us, he comes in fire. He comes to cleanse. But he also comes to anoint in the same way. So in, in this passage we see the anointing of coming upon Jesus for ministry and the confirmation of who he was. I've missed a passage somewhere. Ah. Turned over too early. You don't get away that easy. Psalm 2. Why are the nations in uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance at the very end, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like with earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son that he may become angry that he may not become angry, and that you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. And how blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm anticipating the coming of the Lord. It's one in which we see heaven's perspective concerning the rebellion of men, the nations. And in the midst of the psalm, we see the Father's affirmation of this messianic figure, who he will install as king over the nations who will indeed be his son. 
And this is a favorite psalm used in the New Testament, particularly verse 7. Today, you, you are my, he said to me, you are my son. You are my son. You are my beloved son. Jesus w- was affirmed that by the Father twice during his ministry. Once at his baptism, once at his transfiguration. And it's almost of exactly the same words used as are used in this psalm. Again, the Father is confirming that Jesus is the messianic figure. You are my son. He had something else, of course, at his baptism. In whom I am well pleased. Everything that Jesus did brings pleasure to the Father. But the Father affirms, using the very words of the psalm, you are my son, you are my son, this is my beloved son. And so again, the Father is confirming at this baptism, Jesus' messianic anointing. And heaven itself shows and confirms who Jesus is. The third passage, Isaiah chapter 42. Verses 1 to 7. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. We have again echoes of this in the affirmation at the baptism of Jesus. But what does it say? My chosen one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. For thus says the Lord God who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeons and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Again, this is one of four Songs of the Servant that you'll find between Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 53. Each one of them anticipates the coming of Jesus. And each one of them portrays him as a servant. Not necessarily as king, but as one who will necessarily rule. And this passage again anticipates the baptism of Jesus in the same way. It starts with the affirmation. My chosen one, in whom my soul delights. And then it confirms, I have put my spirit on him, that he might bring justice to the nations. And this third passage again, anticipates what Jesus would do, how he would come, and what would be the driving force of his ministry, which is the spirit coming upon him. It also anticipates his ministry in verse um, 5 through 7, of setting prisoners free of giving sight to those in darkness, whether physical or spiritual. And all that Jesus did, all that he he continued to do from that point of his anointing onwards, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is is in confirmation of all that was prophesied, both in Isaiah and in the other passages we've seen. Jesus coming in anointing 
was something that should have been recognized by everybody. Because everything he did fulfilled what had already been spoken. It was, anticip- it was fulfilled in the words the Father spoken. It was fulfilled in the works that he did, the opening of blind eyes. Do you know that blind eyes have never been opened up until this point? Up until the launch of the ministry of Jesus. The first time blind eyes were opened, everyone should have said, this is the Messiah. This is the one. Because it never happened. The one who would do it would be the one who was anointed to do that job. And so, turning back to Luke again. You'll see that this passage, these two verses in Luke chapter 3 that can cover, that can um, tell us about the baptism of Jesus. They're not verses plucked out of the air in isolation. They're verses that fulfill all that's gone before, particularly in the three passages we've looked at. And they were the sign to everybody that Jesus' coming was in the anointing of the Spirit, in fulfillment of the Scriptures. And in all of these passages, the divine voice from heaven gives absolute affirmation of the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, who is well-pleasing to the Father. And that which God anoints with his Holy Spirit brings him pleasure. And we too can bring pleasure to the Father as we move and serve and minister in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Returning to our theme of prayer, it's the prayer of Jesus in this passage that initiates his anointing with the Holy Spirit. It's the prayer of Jesus that calls forth an affirming response from heaven. And the question is, do we want an anointing of the Holy Spirit on our ministry? Do we want to see the Holy Spirit anointing what we do, individually and collectively? Do we want to see our ministry, whatever God has called us to do, being empowered and endued by the Holy Spirit? Do we want the affirmation of heaven both for who we are and for what we do? Then prayer is the means by which these things are achieved. It starts with prayer. It starts with coming before the Father. It starts with reconnecting ourselves with him in the the secret place, in the quiet place. It starts on our knees. It starts in our heart. It's not about big bang experiences. It's about reconnection with the Father. In prayer, we put ourselves in the place where we can hear the instruction of the Father. It was through his relationship with the Father that Jesus could say, the Son could do nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the Father doing. That's what Jesus confirmed about his own ministry. He could do nothing of himself except what he saw the Father doing. Why? Because he was in such intimate relationship with the Father that he could hear what the Holy Spirit was directing him to do at every point. And that made his ministry effective. Through prayer and communion with God, we learn to hear from him and to respond to what he wants us to do. And it's in that place that we learn obedience And it's from that place that we can fulfill what God has called us to do.
Also, it's in prayer that we open ourselves up to to the Holy Spirit for him to continually refill us. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we carry an anointing that opens the way for us to fulfill our calling. And we all need more of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It was Martin Luther who said, I have so much to do today that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Our response is, I'll do all I've got to do and then if I've got time I'll get to prayer. Martin Luther says, I've got so much to do I'll spend the first three hours in prayer because he knew that that would give him the wisdom and the anointing to achieve what he needed to achieve. There's no substitute for prayer. And it, was, it is prayer that will give us the enabling to do everything else we need to do. And finally, it's in the secret place, the place of prayer, that we receive the affirmation of the Father. We may not physically hear him say, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. But as we come to that place of prayer, we will sense the Father's pleasure and joy as we come to him. And it's the Spirit himself within us who confirms that we are his children. As it says in Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Do you want to know that, that inner deep sense of being a child of God? Well, it comes from the Spirit and it comes from communion with the Father. If you want to be secure in who you are, connect with the Father. If you want to be anointed in your ministry, service, role in the church and in the world, pray. There's no substitute. And it's time that we got on our knees. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is our great example. And that, Lord God, if we follow his example, we won't go far wrong. And I pray, Lord God, this week that that each one of us might reconnect with you in a new and deeper way. That we might find that strength. That we might find that place that, Lord God, will bring affirmation and anointing in all that we are and all that we do. Lord, let your spirit come amongst us and into our hearts. Let us, Lord God, put ourselves in the place of being refilled every day. And may, Lord God, we minister and work and move in your anointing, in Jesus' name. Amen.